Well, like I said, we're going to finish our study of Galatians this morning. So if you'll open your Bible to the sixth chapter, we'll give our attention to verses 11 through the end. It has almost been four years to the date that the Lord brought us back together. And I am thankful for those years I'm encouraged with where the Lord has us. I pray that you are encouraged as well. My desire, as I know is yours, is to be a church built on the Word of God and nothing else. And the Word of God will never fail us. It will never grow out of season. It will never pass away. It will always edify us when we come to it in humility, with meekness. I'm reminded of that verse in James. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. And that is the greatest thing that the Lord could do for me or for you, and he has done for many of us, is to save us. It's not to give us a useful gift or bless us with anything in this life. The greatest thing the Lord can do for you is to save you. And there is an instituted means that the Lord has used and he will continue to use and that is the word of God. There's something mysterious in the preaching of the word in the preaching of the gospel, the Lord has told us that this is the very power of God unto salvation. I can't coerce you, nor will I ever try. You'll never see me coercing. I'll plead with you. There's a difference. I'll plead with you to come to Christ. I might even beg you to come to Christ. I'm never going to coerce you. I trust that the Lord will accomplish his work. And I know from my own experience, if he can bring me to faith in Christ, he can bring any of you. If he can do that work in me and humble the dragon of pride that dwelled and continues to some degree dwell in me, then he can do that work in any of you. But he's going to do it through his word. And so we give our attention to it again this morning. If you'd read with me Galatians 6, 11 down through verse 18. This is Paul's conclusion. And as we read, I want you to notice that this is nothing more than a summary of the entire epistle. So this is Galatians in a few verses. He hits all the major points. So beginning in verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised. Only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us here that you would help with understanding. And Father, we pray and we plead that this might be a day of liberation for some. That this might be the day, even the hour, that you make the glories of your Son known that you make the sufficiency of the salvation that is to be found in him known, that you make the deceitfulness of sin known, that you make the way of salvation known. You are the God who reveals truth. You are the God of Scripture. All of this that we have read this morning is inspired of you. You have breathed it out. You have made it known to us. Give ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I went back to our introduction from October the 11th of last year. And I reread the introduction that I gave you then. And I want to repeat one sentence of it here. Because after having studied this letter... Lord willing, this truth has been made all the more evident. And I'm quoting here from Philip Graham Ryken. The very first sentence in his commentary on Galatians is this. Galatians is a letter for recovering Pharisees. End quote. Galatians is a letter for recovering Pharisees. Like so many in our day, the Pharisees in Jesus' day and in Paul's day were very religious. They were regular attenders in worship. They bore appearance as those who were very devout and religious. They were orthodox in much, certainly not all, They were orthodox in much of their theology, and they were highly moral, very upstanding men. But they were deficient in one thing, and it's a very important thing, and it's the subject of this sermon this morning in three different parts. They were deficient in their understanding of grace. Galatians has also been called the epistle of free grace. And as we've studied through it, that theme has come out over and over again. In these verses that we've read this morning, Paul reiterates reiterates the truth of this being an epistle of free 
grace in three ways. And these are our three points this morning. First, the grace of Christ's cross is enough. The grace of Christ's cross is enough. And secondly, the grace of regeneration avails everything. And then thirdly, the grace of our Lord Jesus continues with and in those in whom it has triumphed. So those three things are what we're going to look at. First of all, let's look at the grace of Christ's cross is enough or sufficient. Paul writes here in verse 11, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. We know from other places in the scriptures of Paul's writings that his normal practice was to dictate his letters and have someone else write them. Oftentimes he would take up the pen at the very end and write a postscript of sorts. And that's what he's doing here. And it accomplishes several things. It adds authenticity to the letter, but it also shows that Paul was very intimate in his dealings with the Galatians, and some see here a hint at what may be Paul's thorn in the flesh, and that is poor eyesight. I don't know if that's the case or not. He's writing in large letters, perhaps because he can't see all that well, or because he is trying to get across the importance of what he's writing. And so he moves from that acknowledgement of these things coming by his own hand to the 12th verse. And he begins to reiterate the truth of the grace of Christ's cross being enough for salvation of the Jew and of the Gentile. So in the 12th verse, he says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh would compel you to be circumcised. And let me just say at the outset here, since it is true that the grace of Christ's cross is enough, then the contrast to that is all else is futile. All else, regardless how good it may seem or appear, even if it is a staple of the old covenant, like circumcision, now that the new covenant is in effect, it is futility to try to pull out any one aspect of the old covenant or even try to keep the law in its entirety, which the scripture plainly tells us no man can do. It's interesting that Paul gives the real heart of the matter in the 12th verse, and it's in these words, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh. I want that phrase to ring in your ears like it's rang in mine all week. Because it's a phrase of emptiness. To make a good showing in the flesh is to make no showing at all. To make a good showing in the flesh means that you are making a showing before men, but not before God. It means that you are exalting yourself and not exalting the Lord. 
It leaves you dependent on the work of self and not dependent on the work of God in Christ. To make a good showing in the flesh will leave you bankrupt in spirit. And that is the context of this final few chapters of Galatians is walking in the spirit. You and I cannot walk in the spirit if we are attempting to make a good show in the flesh. The motivation for this good show in the flesh, as Paul gives it, is to avoid persecution that would come to those who are holding out the truth that the cross of Jesus is sufficient in the realm of salvation. And so when we read this like I think Paul intends us to read it, Those who would make a good showing in the flesh are trying to impose their will upon the Galatians in showing forth the virtue of circumcision, which is really no virtue at all. We're going to see that here a few verses later. But their motivation is so that they might not suffer persecution, so that they might escape persecution for the cross. Specifically, the message of the cross. And I'll remind you of what Paul said in another place. The message of the cross to the Jew was a scandal. Because it takes all of the oracles of God uttered to them, given to them under the old covenant, and it binds them up in one, and it declares over them unable. And so Paul here is reminding the Pharisee the most stringent keepers of the law, that every aspect of your law keeping, even circumcision, the greatest in your own eyes, is completely unable in the sight of God to accomplish anything for you. And so to escape persecution that would come from preaching the sufficiency of the cross, they just stuck to their message of circumcision. And it's also worth remembering that some of the most severe persecutors of the faith in the scriptures were not the Romans, or the Jews. Who stoned Stephen? It was that group of highly exalted religious men who stood as the elite of the elite to whom Stephen gave a powerful and eloquent representation of their Old Testament history and then showed how Jesus was the culmination and fulfillment of all of that. And it was at the point to where he made the transition of beginning to show who Jesus was and is that they were cut to the heart and became angry began to lash out at him with their tongues and then even go so far as to pick up the stones that would take his life. Paul himself was part of this religious elite mob. And he represents all of those who would hold to error to save face here and now. Please see how ridiculous that is. To hold to error in this life, to save face in this life, not to suffer any type of persecution in this life and then lose everything in the end. 
That's a transaction that makes no sense to any economist, is it? To have everything here in this life seemingly and to lose all in the end when the real accounting is made, when the reckoning comes. And you remember the words of Jesus, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So don't be numbered amongst those who at any cost attempt to make a good showing in the flesh. Why would they do such? Well, I think the reason is found in several places in Scripture, but I'm going to give you one quote from William Gurnall. William Gurnall said this. He said, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. There's a reason that the scriptures tell us not to fear the face of man. There's a reason why God told the prophet, go and preach to this people, but don't put any stock in their appearance as you preach to them. And I believe it was Martin Lloyd-Jones that echoed these words when he said, under no circumstances should the pew dictate what is said in the pulpit. What he's saying there is, There is never a reason for whatever is being said in the pulpit to tickle the ears of those sitting in the pew. And so when you go back to looking at the motivation for making a good showing in the flesh, it is to escape persecution which comes from the preaching of the cross of Christ being sufficient in this realm of salvation This is exactly what Paul, again, is accusing the Judaizers that have come and assaulted the church of Galatia. This is what he is accusing them of. And then he goes so far as in verse 13 to say, not even those who are circumcised are keeping the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, they were notching their belt and saying, I've got another one. I've won another one over. And remember that this was not a complete denial of Jesus and his work on the cross, but it was denial enough to say that it wasn't in itself sufficient. And we might say it in the vernacular of our day that it was Jesus plus something else that equals salvation which is a heretical message, regardless of what the something else may be. Paul contrasts himself with the Judaizers when he says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word boast here we've dealt with before means to glory in, to exult in, to have as your greatest grounds of confession of anything, to glory or to boast. Paul says, God forbid that I boast except in the cross. Now remember, Paul is a former Pharisee, which brings out those words that I begin with all the more. This is an epistle for a recovering 
Pharisee. Many of us are recovering Pharisees in the sense that we were holding to at some point in our supposed Christian life that it was the things or maybe the one thing that I have done or were doing that made me Christian. God forbid that we boast in anything except the cross of Christ. It was on the cross of Calvary where my and your redemption was paid, where our salvation was won, where the work was finished and accomplished to the satisfaction and appeasement of God. I want you to notice how Paul says this. He mentions three crucifixions that have taken place when we rightly consider the cross of Jesus Christ, which is to be our boast and glory. Obviously, the first crucifixion is the crucifixion of the Son of God in the place of sinners. Christ hang there because of nothing of his own doing. He was found innocent. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. But yet because of envy and spite, the crowd called out for Jesus' crucifixion all the more. We're most familiar with this crucifixion. The actual body of the Son of God being beaten. The actual body of the Son of God bleeding and dying on the cross in our stead. But Paul mentions two more crucifixions that we do well to heed today and to remember and by the grace of God to see as realities in our own lives. And that is not just a crucifixion of the actual body of Jesus, but Paul says it this way, by whom the world has been crucified to me. And let me remind you that the word crucify here means to put to death. No one ever escaped death that had been made subject to crucifixion. Its result and end was always the death of the one crucified. And so what Paul means here to glory and boast in the cross is to realize that through the cross of Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to you. The world has been put to death to you. And I I realize that there is this whole issue of remaining sin. We've dealt with that at length. I realize that there is this war within the flesh and the spirit. But that doesn't negate at all the reality of the truth, which Lord willing will live more fully in day after day. And that is the world has been crucified to the believer. The power and pull of the world system. All of those things that are fleeting and passing and reserved for the judgment of fire has been crucified to the life of a believer. So much so, its crucifixion has come and been put to death that we are no longer looking for things in the world or any world system for our salvation or even our happiness. Let me just say plainly. If you are looking for happiness in this world, 
If you are looking for peace in this world, you're never going to find it. You might find a fleeting, passing happiness in something that will satisfy you for a while. But you'll never find the true source of peace and happiness until you realize that this world system and everything that it has to offer has been put to death on the cross of Christ and by the Christ of the cross on your behalf. He did something for you and me there that we cannot do in our own strength. Putting the world to death. But then there's a third crucifixion here also Paul mentions. It's very similar. It's the mirror. It's the reflection of the second. And he says, and I to the world. So when we contemplate this from the perspective of a true believer, the world has been put to death. But then also there has been a death of that person who once gloried and boasted in the world He too has died. So let me read the verse again, verse 14 in in its entirety. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You should be able to say, if you have any hope of eternal life at all, That this verse is the defining characteristic of your understanding of the outworkings of the gospel. Christ crucified on the cross in my place. The world system put to death there by him on my account. And then also my life that I once lived in the world, glorying in the world, taking, taking my source of happiness and joy from it. That life too has died. That's what Paul would paint for us in picture form in Romans chapter 6. The the being buried with Christ in baptism unto death. But then there's also this raising to life. This newness of life in which we are to walk as believers. And it comes back to the things that he writes here. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The life that I live, I live in Christ and Christ in me. So we've covered our first point, and the first point being the grace of Christ's cross is enough. There's no room for making a good show in the flesh. There's no room for fearing persecution and doing anything to skirt it. There is no room to boast or to glory in anything other than the cross of Jesus. And what was accomplished there? The second point as we move on is that the grace of regeneration avails everything. Verse 15 says, For in Christ Jesus, and there's that phrase that Paul uses so often in his epistles, in Christ, which refers to the relationship of the believer to Christ by faith. The theological term for this is not fancy. You can remember it, union with Christ, being united to him by faith. 
If you are a believer here this morning, then you are, by virtue of your faith in Christ, you have been united to Him, and God sees you as He sees Him. God has given you the righteousness that was Christ's. And so Paul says again, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. So Paul says it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or if you're not. If you were the most vehement denier of circumcision in the Galatian church, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter if you had succumbed to circumcision or if you had just flat outright denied every aspect of it. Paul says it will not profit you anything. It will not profit you anything. So what is the obvious question? The obvious question must be then what does avail? What is of supreme worth and value in the sight of God? What is going to avail me here and now and in the end? What will be accepted of God? And the answer to that question, Paul gives, nothing but a new creation. Nothing but a new creation. So let's talk about that new creation for just a minute. The new creation is a reference to a quickened and enlivened soul. One that has experienced the new birth. One that has passed from death to life. This new creation is spoken of in other places of the scripture. I want to read you those verses, most notably 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed. Behold, all things have become new. It is this creation that Paul refers to again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, when he says that we are to put off concerning our former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man, hear this part, that you may put on the new man which was created according to God and created in true righteousness and holiness. But yet also hear Jesus when Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, And he very simply says to him, you, Nicodemus, you leader in the all things Pharisee, you must be born again. A little before and after Jesus says, Jesus says that to him, he says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from, nor where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what avails with God now and hereafter? Being born again. 
being born again, being created anew. It's true and worth rehearsing that man was created in the garden perfect. There was no spot nor blemish in Adam in his original state. But unlike Jesus, who was not subject to changing, Adam was created subject to changing. And change he did. And in that change, which is called the fall of man, the sin entered the world and the image of God in Adam was marred and distorted. And it's in the rebirth, the being born again, where that image is somewhat restored, not perfectly and fully just yet. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus. This process of sanctification has a distinct beginning and it is a process, but it culminates and ends in glorification when that image of God is perfectly restored in his fallen creatures. And then we stand like Adam created in the garden. But even better, we stand as the God-man himself, the sinless, perfect one, fully restored. This is the importance of the new birth. If circumcision nor uncircumcision does not avail anything, then what does? Being born again. Are you born again? And I want you to notice something. You cannot born yourself again. This is a miraculous, even supernatural work of God that he performs in miraculous grace. Paul adds to this. As many as walk according to this rule. What's the rule? Let's be clear. What's the principle? What's the guideline? What's the rule that has been given? That only a new creation, thus faith in Christ, avails. Not circumcision. Not denying circumcision. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God. I think it's important to note that there's not a distinction made between two peoples of God. There is one people of God in Christ. Paul calls them here the Israel of God. If there were two people spoken of here, then there must be two ways of salvation. Paul says there's not two as many as walk according to this Rule. There's one rule, not two, not three, nor four. There's one, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. It's a rehearsing of what Paul has already said to, to the Romans when he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men. And read that. No good showing in the flesh being made, but praise being 
from God. So the first two points, the grace of Christ's cross is enough. Secondly, the grace of regeneration or the new birth avails everything. It is of supreme worth before God. Then the last point, and in conclusion, this grace continues with those in whom it has triumphed. Paul says, brethren, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with you and with me. Once you have the grace of God in Christ and you have it in truth, it will always be yours. Let me just briefly touch on verse 17. Paul says, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Few have suffered like Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel. He had the scars to prove it. But let me conclude not just this sermon, but really our entire study of this letter by reading what very well may be the most well-known, most often quoted verse or two verses of this epistle. And I think it summarizes what Paul has said here in his conclusion. It's in chapter 2. You know these verses well. Verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And remember what all comes with that. The crucifixion of the world and your own crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. I want you to hear me clearly on this point. Are you listening? Let me warn you and beg you. Do not set aside the grace of God. The grace of God has been made known. To set it aside means to just cast it aside. But I want you to also see that it means that you are trusting that righteousness is going to come in some other way. And what has Paul said? 
The only thing that avails anything with God is a new creation in Christ. Don't set the grace of God aside. May it be true of you. And I want you to see, again, we we talked about this when we studied the second chapter, but I want you to see the intimacy of your salvation. Sometimes we think of salvation in terms of, of something that we know to be true, but we put it kind of at arm's length. I want you to notice what Paul says. Back in this 20th verse. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You have every right. It's not a right that I'm giving you. But you have every right to glory and boast in this statement. If you have come to Christ through faith and you have cast aside any other means of salvation, any other hope of being made right with God, if you've put all your hope and trust and faith in the finished work of Christ, then you can say with emotion, you can say with joy, you can say through tears, you can say with a smile on your face, you can say in dust and ashes, say it however you want to say it, but say it. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I hope and pray that that's true of you. That you can say that unashamed. And that every desire that you have had to make a good showing in the flesh has gone out the window. And that you see Christ as everything. What was accomplished at Calvary is everything. And it's the only thing that avails with the Holy God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus in our place. We thank you for the new birth. We thank you for the mysterious blowing of the wind where it wishes. Lord, we pray that we we might hear the sound of it even here today. Father, convince every heart of the trustworthiness of Scripture and the sufficiency of the cross of Christ to avail. We're thankful for the new birth. Thankful to be born again. Thankful to have life where there was once deadness. Thankful to have the image of God restored. And we look, full, we look forward to when that image is fully displayed, when we are ultimately and finally glorified along with your Son. Father, would you take this attempt of preaching and make it profitable? Lord, add your blessing to it. 
make the message clear and plain that Christ receives sinful men. Father, we pray that in this study of this book, we have both been edified and exalted you, exalted grace to its rightful place. It is free. We can come without money, without price, and drink of this water freely. Oh God, may it be so in every heart, in every life, present here today.